0: Well, I know this is going to come as a a shock to some of you, but it is 25 years this summer since I left university. And in that time, I think it's fair to say the the world has changed. I was a student at Exeter College in Oxford in the early 1990s. And around that time, the LGBT movement, I don't think they had yet added the Q or the I or any of the other letters that we now have, Uh, was really starting to get going. And several colleges used to show their support for this by holding annual queer weeks. My college chose to hold an annual straight week. Obviously, uh, the people who organised that thought they were being very clever and hilarious. But amazingly, looking back, I don't remember that there was a huge outcry about straight week. Not not everyone loved the idea, of course, but it wasn't officially challenged, and plenty of people certainly felt able to be very public in their support of it. I bet there are no universities or colleges holding straight week in 2019. And I'm not saying that I think there should be, necessarily, but it's just an interesting observation on how our culture has changed. Back in the 1990s, I think it's fair to say the mass of public opinion was still at least somewhat hostile towards homosexuality. Things were certainly changing but the spectre of AIDS still loomed large and many people openly blamed the gay community for its rapid spread. In 2019, by contrast, if you express any kind of public hostility towards LGBTQI people you will bring down a storm of abuse on yourself you may lose your job you may even be arrested just a week or two ago a judge in this country had to rule on a case of a woman who had been accused of harassment for failing to address a transgender person by their preferred pronoun online the world has changed We live in a society where the biblical teaching that we've had so clearly outlined for us this morning is no longer accepted by most people. Christians are not the moral majority in this country anymore. Our children are constantly being told that gender is fluid but sexual orientation is fixed. That provided there is mutual consent there is no such thing as sexual sin Indeed, that the only sin would be to prevent someone from expressing their sexuality in whatever way they choose. And in that context, I think it is clear that to steal Glyn Harrison's phrase, we need a better story. Simply teaching people the rights and wrongs of sexual morality, important though that is, is not going to be enough to help them navigate through the constantly changing liberal mores of our society. It's not going to be enough to keep Christians from falling into sin, and it's certainly not enough to commend the faith to already sceptical unbelievers. The story that the world is hearing at the moment is that Bible-believing Christians hate gay people that we repress our own sexuality, that we are ashamed of our bodies, that we don't care about people being lonely or frustrated, unloved or abused, that we are more concerned with seemingly arbitrary rules than people's happiness. The world looks at the church and sees discrimination and exclusion when we know that the gospel message is one of inclusivity and diversity of love that transcends boundaries the world looks at the church and sees prudes and killjoys when we know that Christ came in order that we might have life and have it to the full the world looks at the church and sees abusers and hypocrites When we know that in reality, our pews are simply filled with forgiven sinners. Yes, as weak and flawed and wicked as anyone else, but welcomed, forgiven, healed and redeemed in Christ. The world is hearing a false story, but believing it. People in our churches are hearing that false story too, and more and more of them are believing it. And simply telling them what the Bible says about who is allowed to have sex and when and with whom, simply treating the Bible as a rule book to be obeyed, I don't think is enough. What we need is not just a rule book, but a love letter. What we need is not just the law to be our schoolmaster, but the Lord tenderly wooing his beloved bride. That, I think, is what is going to give us the motivation for sexual holiness in the midst of our depraved world. That is how we'll learn to delight in these sexual bodies that God has given us. It's when we begin to understand that our sexuality is part of a bigger story, a better story of creation and redemption, of restoration and consummation, that we can begin to celebrate it and enjoy it. Because sex, including but not limited to the physical act of sexual intercourse, is part of God's eternal plan for his people and his world. And I want to be clear, we all need this better story. Whether you are married or single, whether you have a fabulously satisfying sex life, Or whether you have one that is painful and frustrating. Whether you're widowed or divorced. Whether you've been abused or assaulted. Whether you're a virgin or whether you've had a whole string of shameful sexual experiences in your past. Whether you're attracted to people of the same sex or the opposite sex or both sexes or neither. Whatever your experience of sex and sexuality you are part of this better story this great romance in which God sweeps his people off their feet and into his arms and it's as part of this bigger better love story that we can enjoy our sexuality properly and use it appropriately no matter what circumstances God has put us in so what is that story what is the better story about sex that Christians should be telling well it's no less than God's own love story. The story of God's love for his people, his betrothal and marriage to them, his bride's unfaithfulness, her adultery and prostitution. The story of her being made new again, betrothed again, as we just heard from Hosea. The story of the bridegroom who sacrifices his life for his bride the bridegroom who will one day return once and for all for the celebration and consummation of that marriage. Even more than that, I think it is the story of God himself, of who he is in all eternity, and the invitation he offers to us through Christ to participate in that reality ourselves. Our better story is about true love, lasting marriage, real sex, and fierce desire. You know, when people find out that I wrote my PhD thesis on the Song of Songs, the question they most often ask me is, so what is it all about? And I kind of want to say it's not all about any one thing. It's about lots of things. But if I had to pick, I would say this. The Song of Songs is about desire. It's about longing about yearning it's about the pain of separation and the joy of coming together again and again in a cycle that runs throughout the book the moment of greatest intimacy and delight comes at the very end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five and is immediately followed by the story which shows the most painful kind of separation and even sexual assault And the Song of Songs ends in the same way it begins with the bride calling out for her lover, her beloved, her bridegroom to come to her and be with her and kiss her and love her. It's the same way the Bible ends as we've already heard. The spirit and the bride say come. Because the whole Bible I think, is a book about desire. It is a book that is supposed to make us long for more, to feel that same yearning of the fiancé waiting impatiently for the consummation of her marriage. You know, it's no wonder the world doesn't understand this story. How quaint is that, the idea of waiting for your marriage before you consummate your relationship Sometimes when people talk about the marriage between God and his people, I feel like they make it sound as though it's no more than a business transaction, a treaty between nations. And yes, marriage is a covenant, but it's not impersonal. Marriage is solemn and legal, but it is relational and romantic. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. God says, I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Or in Isaiah 62, God says, no longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Something businesslike about that relationship. It is a young couple deeply in love, delighting in each other, rejoicing in how lucky they are to have each other. It's a romance that goes both ways. We see that in Jeremiah 2. God says, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness we shouldn't be afraid to talk about God's marriage to his people in romantic language because the Bible is not afraid to use romantic language for it we need to be clear yes that this is a corporate relationship God's bride is not me as an individual it is us the whole church together but it is no less romantic for all that With all the feelings that any romance entails. Feelings of tenderness, care, delight, love. And of course, feelings of sexual attraction. If sometimes we're cautious of speaking about God's marriage to his people in romantic terms, I think frankly we're usually terrified to talk about it in sexual terms. Erotic terms. And yet the Bible is not. So Ezekiel 16, God reminds Jerusalem of his history with her. And he says this, uh, starting in verse 6. I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. What does God do for Israel? He waits until she has entered puberty, until her breasts have grown, until she is old enough for love. And then, well, then he goes to bed with her. He spreads his garment over her. He makes an oath and he marries her. That's what it means when it says, and you became mine. This is not some misty version of romance that is limited to writing poetry and holding hands while looking at the sunset. This is a sexual relationship being described. It is a marriage that involves going to bed with each other. I think it becomes even clearer as the relationship goes on, carrying on in Ezekiel 16 at verse 13. God says, you became very beautiful and rose to be a queen, and your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute you lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his Israel's unfaithfulness to God is called prostitution it's taking all the good things that her husband has lavished on her and giving them to other men but worse than that it is taking her own self her beauty and giving that to other men The sexual language that's used for God's relationship with his people is made explicit most often in the Bible in terms of adultery and prostitution when Israel is unfaithful. But it is there in their own marriage relationship as well. So in Hosea 3, uh, Hosea says, The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her? as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Hosea is to love Gomer as the Lord loves the Israelites. So what does that look like? Well, verse 3, then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. Loving as the Lord loves the Israelites looks like an exclusive, faithful, sexual relationship. That's also, by the way, what the Song of Songs is about. An exclusive, faithful, sexual relationship between a man who is the Messiah and a woman who who is his bride, Israel. And it is no cold-blooded marriage of convenience. It is a passionate romance that is deeply intimate and fiercely jealous. It's best expressed, I think, through the formula of mutual possession. I am my beloved's and he is mine. And in the twist that we get on that in Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. This is a romance that begins with God waiting for his bride to reach the age of sexual maturity so that he can take her to his bed. It is a romance that begins again after she has been unfaithful with the revirgination of faithless Israel when God redeems and restores her and makes her fit to be his bride again. You see, God wants us to know, doesn't he, Just how passionate and tender and intimate and jealous his love for us is. And the analogy he uses to describe that is the passionate and tender and intimate and jealous love of a sexual relationship, a marriage. I don't think that is accidental. I don't think it's that God created the world and then looked around to try and find something that would help us see how much he loves us. I think God created the world precisely according to his plan in order to reveal exactly what he intended. He created marriage so that it would communicate precisely what he wanted it to about the nature of his love for us. That's what the Bible teaches, isn't it? It's what the Bible tells us in Genesis 1, in fact. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God made human beings male and female in his image. The fact that we are sex beings or sexual beings male and female, is part of what it means for us to be in God's image. Our sexness or our sexuality reflects and therefore reveals something of God himself. Sexuality is not the only aspect of what it means to be made in God's image, of course, and, and we shouldn't think that this implies that God himself is sexual, that he is male or female or, or some combination of the two. But nonetheless, the sex nature of humanity is explicitly mentioned in the creation story in Genesis 1 as part of what it means for us to be made in God's image. Our male and femaleness somehow reflects and reveals God's nature. Traditionally, theologians have focused on love as the analogy to be drawn between human relationships and intra-trinitarian relationships that is the relationships between the father son and spirit the deep eternal love between father son and spirit is reflected in various kinds of human relationships isn't it most obviously the love between a parent and a child as we see in the persons being called father and son But in Genesis 1 the imaging of God is ascribed to our male and femaleness not to a parent and child relationship and specifically in the context of Genesis 1 and indeed Genesis 2 it implies that it is a male female sexual relationship. So Genesis 1 again God created mankind in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. How will they obey that command to be fruitful and multiply? Through sex. And in Genesis 2, uh, we get confirmation that the man and the woman are to come together as one flesh to establish a family unit for mutual delight and help in marriage. So I think the love, the fellowship, the mutual help, the shared purpose of a marriage between a man and a woman is intended to show us a little glimpse of what those eternal relationships are like between the members of the Trinity. And not just the love, the fellowship, the support, the shared purpose, but also the sex also the one flesh union that is it seems to me at least that there is something about the eternal intimate loving mutual indwelling of the persons of the trinity which is reflected in the intimate loving indwelling shared by a man and a woman in the act of sexual intercourse a loving marriage involves much more than just sex of course And all of what it involves reflects something of the eternal divine love within the Trinity. But I think it's true to say that sex is the means by which human beings can experience the greatest intimacy with another person, feel the greatest delight in another person. Sex is the most intense expression of a loving relationship. And because of that, I think we might even say that it is in having sex within the context of love and marriage that it is possible to come closest to experiencing something of what those divine eternal relationships are like. There are significant differences, just to point out the obvious. Sex is transient and not eternal, sex is physical, but God is spiritual. Sex is designed for two persons, not three. I am not suggesting that the persons of the Trinity are engaged in some kind of eternal orgy. I'm going to say that again. I am not suggesting that the persons of the Trinity are engaged in some kind of eternal orgy. I'm simply suggesting that the analogy with sex is one way we can better understand the doctrine of perichoresis, that is the eternal Mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity. That in the act of sex, and specifically the act of sex within the context of a loving, permanent relationship, that is marriage, people get the tiniest glimpse for the briefest moment of what it would be like to enjoy the relationships that exist eternally within God Himself. It turns out uh, not to be G.K. Chesterton who said that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. I don't know who did say it but whoever did there is a great deal of truth in that observation I think. One reason that sex exerts such a powerful grip on people that we give it so much significance in our lives and expect so much from it is because it does indeed give us a tiny fraction of a glimpse of something divine and eternal. And of course, because of that, sex is so easily exalted to a place that should be reserved only for God. Sex becomes the goal of life for so many people, the source of meaning, the place where we find identity. There's so many people today, aren't there, who define themselves primarily by their sexual attraction rather than by their relationship to their creator God. Sex so easily becomes an idol because what it offers is so tantalizingly close to what we find in God himself. Except, of course, it isn't. Because here's the thing. Sex never delivers on the promise that it offers. Sex is fleeting. It always ends, and... Of course, the end is sort of the point of sex. It's almost as if it's not designed to provide true satisfaction after all. It's almost as if it's designed to leave us wanting more. And indeed it is. It is supposed to make us look forward. It is supposed to make us long for a consummation that won't be over just like that but a consummation that will last. It is meant to make us look forward to the new creation. When united with Christ by faith, we will be drawn into that eternal, mutual, loving, indwelling relationship with God himself. When we will finally get to experience the reality of which human sex is only the shadow. Above above all then, I think this is what sex is really for. It's not primarily for procreation or primarily for pleasure in the present moment. It is preparation for our future. All our sexual experiences are designed to make us into the bride who we saw in the Song of Songs, who sits and gazes over the mountains, longing for the first glimpse of her bridegroom The betrothed woman who cannot wait for her wedding day, who desires above all things the consummation of her marriage. So I want to say whatever is good about your sex life now, it is transient. The pleasure of an orgasm does not last. At best, which is to say, in the context of a loving heterosexual marriage which lasts a lifetime best, a happy and healthy sex life can only help to build that relationship and make it flourish for a little while. All marriages end. All marriages end. And so whatever joy and delight you find in sex now, that should only make you long for a better and more lasting satisfaction. Whatever is not good, about your sex life now is only transient whatever pain and frustration you find in sex should only make you long for something better whether you are single and sad whether you are same-sex attracted and frustrated or angry whether you are a survivor of sexual abuse and frankly terrified Whether you suffer from sexual dysfunction and are ashamed. Whether you know you've made mistakes in the past or are still caught up in sexual sin in the present. Whatever it is about this broken, fallen world that stops you from experiencing sexual fulfillment now should make you long for the day when you will be truly satisfied, truly happy, truly intimate, truly Free from fear. And on that day, it's not the case that there will be no sex. We know there will be neither marriage nor giving in marriage, as Jesus explained to the Sadducees, but that is because there will be the ultimate marriage. The marriage for which our human marriages are just weak shadows and signs. And in that ultimate eternal marriage there will be the ultimate experience of everything that sex was designed to be. So no, I don't think we will be having sex with each other in the new creation. But I'm also sure that we won't be looking back. No one will be wistfully remembering those messy momentary sexual encounters of this world any more than we will be looking back wishing for animal sacrifices or the passing glories of Solomon's temple. We will have Christ. We will have Christ, the lamb who was slain, Christ, the temple and our great high priest, Christ, our heavenly bridegroom. We won't be having sex with each other, but we will be closer than that because we will be perfectly united in Christ. We won't be having physical sexual intercourse, but we will be having true and better intercourse with one another and with God himself, eternally enjoying that passionate and tender and intimate and loving indwelling which Christ calls us into by faith. So there's our better story. It's God's better story in which sex is of eternal and cosmic significance, and in which sex is merely a weak and temporary shadow of the reality that is to come. You and I are not at the end of this story. And so as we read the Bible, we should be feeling that longing and desire. We shouldn't be satisfied with what we have now. We should be frustrated and impatient and eager for our betrothal to come to an end and our wedding day to arrive, for our bridegroom to come and be with us and kiss us and love us. The end of the story is coming. And it will be a fitting climax to all God's work of creation and revelation, redemption and restoration. It will be eternal and glorious intimate and joyful it will be the greatest sex you've ever had